praises or prayer requests this morning? <clears throat> Brandy is due on the 24th with baby F. So, <laughs> little boy, and we are, you know, just pray that everything goes well. Absolutely. And that they get to the hospital in time. She goes very fast. So. That is, yes. Yes, I know how that is. <laughs> no, I, I'm just saying, like, it's a blessing in one way, but the stress of getting there is sometimes, well, that's wonderful, wonderful news. And how many, how many grandkids is that now? That's awesome. Very blessed. That's amazing. So we'll certainly be praying for Brandy. Bennett? Can you pray for my best friend, Jessica? She's trying to have a baby, and she's been trying so hard, and okay. this is like her fifth try. Okay. And lately it's not been working, and she's been going to the hospital, and they just say, keep on trying, and eventually you will have a baby. Okay. Okay. Well, certainly we can... Pray for her. And you said her I name, hope her she she's not going to be able to not have. I hope that that she'll be able to have a baby because she really wants one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope she doesn't get the word that eventually you're not going to have a baby. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll certainly, certainly pray for your friend, Bennett. Yes, sorry. Uh, yes, I'd like prayer for Clark. He uh, went in and had to have knee surgery and found out that uh, they needed to run some um, tests before they could do that. So he's had a stress test, and he's going to have an angiogram okay. uh, next week. And um, so I think we're postponing the knee surgery uh, to the fall or beyond. Sure. So. so far, the test gone okay? As far as you know, we're still waiting back for results. Well, the stress test came back um, okay. that there were some changes, and that's why they're doing the angiogram. Gotcha. And okay. So. We'll certainly pray for him. We'll hang in there. Anything else, guys? As always, thank you very much to the gentleman who helped with the mics. Appreciate it. Anything else? All right. If there's nothing else, we'll get started here. We'll open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the uh, warmer weather. Thank you for uh, a building we can gather in here together. And thank you for your word, Lord, for your holy word. Lord, um, before we begin, we want to lift up some of those among us. We want to pray for um, Ron. We just pray that uh, the surgery on his back was successful, that they were able to remove all of the problem. And we pray, Lord, that the tissue would heal normally um, and just pray that he would be restored to being able to walk again. Pray for Blanche as she um, helps him and encourages him through this. And just pray that you would be uh, be there for them, Lord, and be a constant source of uh, comfort. Lord, we uh, pray for Brandy. Um, we're thankful for the news of a baby and we just pray that her her delivery um 
would be a, a good one and a safe one. Pray for both mother and child. Pray that they get to the hospital on time and um, pray that you would just watch over that whole situation. Lord, we pray for uh, Bennett's friend Jessica. We pray that she would be able to conceive a baby and successfully have one. We have many examples, Lord, in your word about um, faithful women who waited a long time and who were um, eventually blessed with a child, and we just pray that it would be the same for Jessica. Lord, we pray for Clark. Um, just pray that uh, the rest of his tests would um, go well and that he would be able, as, as soon as possible, to um, have the knee surgery he needs and just uh, watch over them. Lord, uh, I pray that you would uh, bless this um, study of your word. I pray that you would guard us from error and that it would be glorifying most of all to you and that you would reveal yourself to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thank you. Um, just a, a little housekeeping here. Uh, first of all, David, this will be part two on David, after a lot of thought and a lot of uh, typing and a lot of reading, I, we're going to have to do three weeks on David. So I just, David is in fact a pretty big deal in the Old Testament and um, I want to do it justice and I especially want to take time next week to look at some of the stuff. Um, I feel like we hit a lot on the beginning of David's life, his ascension, becoming king, his conflict with Saul. Um, I want to save some time next week to look at David as king, David as a father, David as some stuff closer to the end of his reign, stuff that may be less well-known, but I think will be, um, I hope will be a blessing, will be important. Don't worry, anyone who's been taking careful notes in James knows that by comparison we are flying. So don't worry, we're going to get through all this, we're just going to add a little bit more time for David. Um, and uh, I think everyone remembers where we uh, left last week. Um, or we left Saul. Um, for those of you who weren't here, for Samuel 19, Samuel, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we find Saul naked on the ground prophesying. And um, that's where we pick up today is in uh, 1 Samuel 20. David um, leaves Naoth and comes to Jonathan. And remember, we've, we've spoken in the past about the relationship between Jonathan and David, the friendship that developed. Um, we know that Jonathan was a, a mighty man of war, Saul's son, so it is certainly um, um, an, an interesting place for that friendship to blossom, and yet we don't get, we, we never get the sense that Jonathan is jealous of David, even though David, it must, have been, it must have been in some ways a hard position for Jonathan to be in because at the same time he's seeing the deterioration of his own father, the king, um, and he's seeing... David, who is on the rise, you might say. And see, if because if Saul had been a righteous king before God, it's very possible that Jonathan would have been the guy and not David. So it, it is an interesting and unlikely friendship in some ways, um, but it, it, it is, becomes an important part of our story. So David speaks to Jonathan and David basically insists that he's done no wrong. He has not attempted to usurp the throne from Saul, even though God has already said he will take it from him. Um, and he's not, he's not cheated Saul in any way. And they devise, Jonathan and David come up with a plan to test Saul with a uh, story 
explaining David's absence. David's afraid to be near Saul, and Saul's tried to kill him twice already with a, with a spear. Failed, so we can certainly see where that fear would come from. Um, and they make a covenant, and Jonathan says, well, by the way my father responds, my father the king, we're going to know sort of his mindset toward you. And I will warn you, um, there's a plan, most of you probably are familiar with it, about shooting an arrow and then sending a boy to fetch the arrow, and David will hide out in the field. And by Jonathan shooting this arrow, he will let David know what the response of Saul was. Um, so, this is in First uh, Samuel 20, when the king notices that David is not there, um, Jonathan answers Saul. This is in uh, verse 28. Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, what, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? If anything, so, so break off here. If anything, David had been a very faithful servant of Saul. Remember, the, Bible, the Scripture says that no, no leader, military leader under Saul had as much success against the Philistines as David did. And it's interesting here that right before Saul tries to, en to enlist Jonathan's help to kill David, he throws out this little, I mean, he shames him, of course. As long as the son of Jesse, that's David, of course, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So not only does he try and get his help, he, he kind of dangles a little carrot out there for him. I'm like, here, you know, by the way, unless you help me with this, you're never going to be the guy. Because it's pretty clear now that David is going to be the guy after Saul. And Saul's like, if you don't help me with this, as long as he's alive, you will never be the king over Israel. But Jonathan, which again speaks to his character, is, is not tempted. He defends David. Um, and it, it's just an interesting picture of their, of their friendship that he wasn't tempted by his father basically saying, your future rides on this. Um, but instead he is he's grieved because of the state of his father. He's grieved for his friend. Um, so it it's, becomes a big mess. Um, and, and we move on further down. And Saul now, after Jonathan spoke up and defended David, Saul hurled his spear out to strike him. Now, we've seen Saul try and kill David twice with a spear. Now, Saul tries to kill his own son with a spear. And I think, as, as, as Greg pointed out last week, anyone who's familiar with Saul's skill with a spear knows that Jonathan might have been more safe than he seemed. However, the fact remains that Saul, in his anger, and, and we've talked about the progression of sin, the maturation of sin, and Saul has come to a point now where He's perfectly willing to hurl a spear at his own son, 
who would speak in defense of David. So we see that Saul is truly being consumed by his sin. Um, it's very sad, but again, that that um, we talked about that's where that's where his, his sin has brought him. Um, so Jonathan, obviously very upset, departs again, not killed by the spear, and signals David as they have agreed. Um, they embrace and then depart. Um, Jonathan, this is in uh, chapter 20, verse 42. Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between you and me and between you and my, between you, my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So now David is, is on the run. He's gone. Jonathan's warned him and he's, he is, um, he's taken off. And David, um, fleeing, he comes to Nob, to Ahimelech, <clears throat> not Abimelech, but Ahimelech the priest. And this is a, a famous story I just thought I'd mention about how David asked him to provide for him. And since there is no other bread, the priest gave him the holy bread. You guys familiar with that story? It was just, it was what they had, and the priest gave it to him. Um, David tells him, um, the king has charged me with a matter. So basically, David basically says, help me. And the priest does. And interestingly, and I don't know if this, this may be interesting to you, he also gave him, he also armed David. So David, he, he feeds David, you know, to, rest, to restore him and refresh him. He also arms him. But what does he give him? This is in uh, chapter 21, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requested haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take, if if that if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. So David, interestingly, ends up, he's like, What do you have? You know, anything to arm me? Well, first he asks him for bread. He goes, I don't have any bread except the holy bread. He's like, Okay, we gave him the holy bread to eat. He's like, Do you have I don't have any kind of weapon, I'm, you know. And he goes, well, I've got the sword of the giant over here. You remember the giant? You killed him, you know. We kept his sword as a trophy. It, it, and this is what David ends up armed with. So he's, so uh, David flees now, um, restored and armed. Um, he also, one more, one more story that you may have heard of later, he comes before the king of Gath, and he is almost identified. And David, not knowing what to do, but not wanting to be identified, he pretended to be insane. It said it, it said literally he let the spittle run down his beard. So he acted crazy, like like an insane man, so that the king would be like, Oh, why have you brought him here? This is, you know, just just go away. So David is really on the run. He's having to take sustenance and armament from the priests. He is he's so vulnerable that that when he is brought before king, he has to pretend, you know, pretend to be crazy so that he won't be um, captured. And David then departs to a, the cave of Abdullam. Here he is joined by 400 men. 
And I think it's interesting to hear, because here we see David no longer alone, but David starting to build what you might call a fighting force uh, around him. And it says, um, David depart- this is in chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So, a lot, you know, when times when you're in trouble or in need, a lot of times you go to your family. That makes sense. Verse 2, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Well, that's interesting. Um, the people that are, who, who, did, who, does, who was drawn to David? Well, people that are not doing so well, really. Um, it, <laughs> bitter men, men in distress, men in debt. But it makes sense when you think about these are men who may not be happy with the current situation of the kingdom, right? I'm maybe you know maybe you owe a huge debt and you're like, well, if I if, if this guy's going to be the guy, if I fight for him, you know, if the old monarchy comes down, I'm going to be sitting better. Or you know, men that are bitter, you know, Saul has not been the greatest king. Maybe there's you know people that are displeased and not doing so well with that. It, it's just interesting the kind of people that draws that are drawn to David during this time. And Saul, in pursuit, arrives at Nob, and he accuses Ahimelech of aiding David. And Ahimelech basically says, well, he's been here before. You know, I, I had no reason not to aid him. Um, and Saul... This, um, sorry, this is a really big deal to me. This is really speaks to just where Saul is. This is in 1 Samuel 22, verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David. And they knew that he fled, but did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. That's right. Saul the king is now saying, You aided David. I want all of you dead. And it is such a... um, in a way, it's such an abomination that his own men uh, balk. They refuse. They're, they're just like, uh, you know, the priests, the priests, the law, the priests, you know, Moses, the priestly class, set apart, special job to do, mediators between God and men, those priests. He wants to kill those priests. Um, but that, that, is, that is what we've come to. Um, Saul commands um, an Edomite named Doeg who kills the 85 priests. Only one of them escapes. He destroys the entire city of Nob after that, which was a city of priests. Remember how the priests had their own allowance in the land? They had their own cities. It's a city of priests. And Saul wipes it out. And... um, it's interesting too, in verse 19, in Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, he being Saul, both man and woman and child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Well, see, here we see Saul completely, utterly destroying a city. And how does that compare with his treatment of the city of Amalek in 1 Samuel 15? Does anyone remember? It's one of Saul's early missteps. 
That's right. Yeah, it was what he was supposed to do. It's not what he did. Um, he destroyed most of it. He kept some of the best livestock and he kept the, the king as a sort of trophy of war. But here, he destroys everything in the city, a city of priests, no less. A, a bigger sacrilege would be hard to imagine in this way. Um, and what does this, and here's what I'd like some feedback from you guys. What, do you, what does this reveal, reveal about Saul and his motives, but also his men? I think it, because we kind of see how this plays out here, this whole scene, um, what do we learn about like the state of Israel's king and the men with him? I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear yours. Lee. Well, it's often the people that are close to people that know their true self, because Saul could, I'm sure, put up a good show to the people as he's maybe on parade or something. But then here's the people that are his uh, army men that are sticking with him, and they know that he is obviously off his rocker or just, you know, consumed by sin and anger and hatred for these people. So that's uh, always interesting to see what the people that are on the inside know about our leaders and leaders in general like yeah. that. No, I think yeah. I think it is an important point that even his own men who are with him initially pull back and are like, mm, you know, sort of like, where are we drawing the line here? That's the line they were uncomfortable with. Um, any other thoughts on that about Saul or on his men, about the killing of priests? Front row. I mean, kind of in a way, it's like striking out against God directly. I mean, you can't actually strike God himself, but um, attacking God's priests is kind of, I don't know, the closest step that you can get, like... No, I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's, um, I think that's a good point. That was one of the things that I came up with was it was as near as it, it was near to striking at God himself as Saul could find a physical manifestation to do something, uh, something akin to, I don't know, tearing down or desecrating a, a, a cross or an icon or something, you know what I mean? Something along those lines. It was, it was a physical manifestation of God that Saul literally struck at. So yes. Um, I was going to say that Saul it seems like he pretty much just has one goal at this point to get rid of David and to hold on to being king. And so it's like nothing else matters, you know, the laws or, um, you know, yeah. the, the priests and kind of the, I don't know, the religious it's a good aspect point. of yeah. them. It's like nothing else matters. He's just got this one goal. Anything goes to accomplish that one yeah. goal. But his men... They probably don't like David or who knows exactly what they think, but they don't have the same personal vendetta or this obsession. True. Because they're not king. Because, because the scope of a king's responsibilities are vast. And there's literally e even parts of the law that talk about what the king's supposed to be doing. And it seems that Saul has become absolutely one-track mind here. It's me and it's David. David has to go. And Saul already knows that his kingdom will not continue which was funny because he dangled that in front of Jonathan to try and motivate him to help betray David. He already knew. He'd already been told it's not going to happen. Samuel told him that. Um, but, his, but his focus still is like, just keep myself where I am for as long as I can be. Um, you know, from Saul's perspective, it's good to be the king. But uh, we, we see what's going on here. Um, and interesting that he had to um, command an Edomite 
to kill the to kill the 85 priests. Um, I put this in there. Bonus, can anyone remember who the Edomites were? Oh, I'm sorry. Do we have another question? I apologize. Before we move on here. Yes, thought, thoughts about Saul or his men? Well, I thought he might be a little bit jealous about Saul. And that's the reason why he did some of that bad things. And that's probably the reason why he destroyed some of the places. I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that certainly um, Saul has a lot of jealousy going on. It's hard to see yourself be brought down while someone else is lifted up, especially if you know that God is behind it. Um, so I'm sure that jealousy was a big deal. Good thought, Bennett. Um, yes. Marianne. I was just going to say, I find it interesting that the servants of Saul, obviously, I mean, to not do what they're commanded mm-hmm. to do by the king. Right. They obviously feared God more than they feared Saul. Yeah, in that moment. they refused to do it. Yeah, in that moment, which is, you're right, that's very interesting. Um, at the same time, though, it's interesting that they did not stop Doeg from not only killing the priests, but going on to wield the sword in, within the city. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right. yeah, at least right. that's the way I'm reading it. it that yeah, no, it doesn't, appear, it doesn't appear they got in the way. In they just yeah. didn't want blood on their hands. I, yeah, exactly. They didn't. They stepped back, they hesitated. And sometimes you hear about that, like if you read like biographies of like kings and rulers and that sort of thing, sometimes in the like in the later stages of things beginning to fall apart, you'll see even their closest servants occasionally being like, uh, I happen to do that. Or you know, like a Roman emperor, but near the end of his reign and he'll command something crazy and like for the first time ever, some of his servants will be like, I, I don't know if we could do that. They didn't stop him, Greg. But uh it is sad. It, it, it's hard to read and it's hard to study when you think about how far Saul has fallen. It, it is really a sad passage, but it um, tells us a lot. Yes? Well, I was just going to say, it, it's not surprising to me that his people um, didn't try to stop the Edomites from destroying the city. I mean, Saul is completely unhinged. And so any one of them, anybody that tried to stop him, would know that you're going to be immediately put to death. I mean, Saul has is is going against God. Uh, that's how far he has fallen from reality. That he's taken on God is killing his priests. He has to. He either has to know this isn't going to end well for me. A little, a little bit like Satan. Satan knows that this isn't going to end well, but he's going to fight it to the end. Just because he's, uh, because his sin so blinds him, he's going to do it anyway, even though he knows he can't be successful. Well, Saul is has already had his kingdom taken from him. He's he's throwing spears at anybody that. I mean, you wouldn't have breakfast with Saul anymore, would you? I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, so. Uh, and and so I I think probably uh, they're 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 in fear of him. Uh, just what he would do, what he sure. will do. Sure. I mean, just look as, what he does yeah. do. As an unstable person who's been so destabilized by his, you know, the advancement of his sin and being consumed by it, you're right, like, who knows what he might do, you know? So I, I do understand, certainly I think there would be fear involved in just day-to-day dealing with, with him being close to him. Yes, Lee? Yeah, I just looked up real quick who the Edomites oh. were, and they were uh, Esau's... Uh, yes. descendants and you yes. know he was kind of like the distaff side he was the rejected 
child. Yes. And so you can see that these guys are always kind of be on the outside of the, yes. the uh, um, situation so that that's why they were probably like hired guns that would do pretty much anything that the yes. king would uh, direct. Very good. Yes, the Edomites, um, as you said, Esau's, remember Jacob and Esau back when, a few lessons ago, Esau, who, had, who found a foreign woman to marry, um, which became a separate people, and a separate people to the extent that, remember, when Isra the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they were traveling, they were trying to get to the Promised Land, they petitioned the, they petitioned the Edomites to let them pass through. We won't mess with anything, we just want to pass through on our way through, and the Edomites wouldn't let them. So there's a history of enmity there, and they're sort of like first cousins, but they don't get along. And um, so I just, I just thought it was interesting that he had to command someone who was not an Israelite to do the job, um, a man named Doge. Doge, D-O-E-G. I very rarely talk about pronunciation here, but I... I Doug? <laughs> well, I was trying to pronounce it, but it com kept coming out Doge, which is like... Um, the Doge was like the leader of the Republic of Venice. That's what they called him for, for the Republic of Venice for like a thousand years. They called it the Doge. And I was like, what? And my wife bet me that I'd misspell, my, I'd missay it up here on stage and say Doug. So it's funny you brought that up. Um, she was like, so anyway, he did a terrible thing and now we're making fun of his name. But anyway, um, that's who the Edomites were. Um, just an interesting little connection to what we've been doing before. Um, oh, sorry. Yes. Simeon, apologize. No, you're fine. I was just noting that the the temple's not in Jerusalem like we're used to. It's a knob. So that's just an interesting thing is like they didn't set up the tent in Jerusalem and then later build the, the temple there. It's in a priest city, which is interesting, I thought. Then when he gets the sword of Goliath, he goes to Gath, which mm -hmm. is if you remember what kind of city that is. Uh -huh. That's Philistine city. Philistine so city, absolutely. That's that's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> which either, which probably would either lead... Yeah. It's Goliath's hometown. Yes, it's Goliath's <laughs> hometown. I, I didn't have room to put that in the notes, but it's very interesting because yeah. my thought was, you walk in carrying Goliath's sword, either everyone's going to attack you or they're all going to get out of your way. Yeah. Uh, one of those two things is going to happen, right? Be like, is that Goliath's sword? Leave him alone. Or is that mm -hmm. Goliath's sword? We should kill him. It's probably one of those two. Um, right. But in the end, like I said, it was it was a desperate situation. It's just funny, uh, you know, David carrying this giant-sized sword around of to yeah. Goliath's hometown. But uh, very good point. That's excellent. The last thing. Yes. Um, him killing the ox, donkey, and sheep in the town, mm -hmm. those probably would have been sacrifice animals. So they would have been mm -hmm. set up and ready for the sacrifice since that's where the holy place was because of the bread. That's so that very... wouldn't just be normal oxen. Right. That'd be the best. Right. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So he may have actually, along with the priest, killed animals that were assembled and prepared for sacrifice. Very interesting. Um, not... Other animals, livestock are there, like the oxen and that sort of thing, and sheep, and um, the animals that were apportioned for sacrifice. But um, no, that, that's a fascinating point, and again, just makes it that much worse, and this is a big moment for, for our story. Any other questions? Because I'm not doing so well with catching them today. Anyone else? You guys had some excellent thoughts. Thank you for that. Um, sometimes when I leave something out, I'm glad when you guys throw it back in, and walking into Goliath's hometown with his sword, I'm glad you guys put that in there. So um, anyway, moving on, the, uh, the Philistines, 
now move against the city of Kilah. David inquires of God, who instructs David to attack them, which is, okay, so David is running from Saul, and God is telling him, no, I still want you to go face off with the Philistines, because David has, a, has, has some men now, he has a retinue of, of, of soldiers with him, you might say, and um, the city's under siege, but David follows God's instructions. He and his men defeat the Philistines and save the city. But there's a problem. Is that um, Saul is moving to try to trap him inside the city. And David inquires of God, and God reveals to David that the citizens of the city that he just delivered from the Philistines do in fact plan to hand him over to Saul. That's thankless, to say the least, um, considering he had just delivered their city. But God is protecting David, and and David is being obedient to God. So God continues to have his hand on David. So this, basically, revealing this, allows David and his men to escape into the wilderness. Saul and his forces pursue. And another famous story... While chasing David, Saul and his force of 3,000 men stopped near a cave. As king, Saul was afforded the privilege of entering the cave to privately relieve himself. Unbeknownst to him, David and his forces are hiding still deeper inside the cave. Um, this is, a, this is a, an interesting moment because it is the first time that we see God literally drop Saul right in David's lap. Saul, who killed the priests, Saul, who has been pursuing him, Saul, who's been cast down as the king, is right there. And David's men, unsurprisingly, say, this is the best thing that could ever have happened to us. Go get rid of him, and we'll be fine. Um, But we see something else revealed here for the first time, and that is that David absolutely will not raise his hand against God's anointed king. Instead, he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, as you all know. When he exits the cave, David reveals himself. When Saul exits the cave, David reveals himself and bows down. But it's actually even more intricate than that. It's even a little bit more severe in David's heart because the scripture records that David's heart struck him for cutting off merely a piece of Saul's robe. And David also persuaded his men not to attack Saul in the cave. As himself, as he himself is the anointed king, why did David show such deference towards Saul? David had been anointed. David was the next king. Why is David so afraid to touch Saul? I mean, to the point that even just like I, he he it was it was almost like a pang of guilt for even just cutting off the corner of his robe. Why? Why is he so 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 respectful of the fact that Saul was God's anointed king? Lee here and, and in the back, please. Well, it, it states several spots that uh, uh, David was not going to touch God's anointed until it was time and uh, until God took him out. So he was very conscious um, that Saul had been chosen by God, even though he, even though David was going to be king, um, he was not going to force that hand until until God was done with him. That's true. David has been walking with God, inquiring with God. Are the citizens going to hand me over? Should I flee? Should I really attack the Philistines? And, and we know that David waits for God before he acts. 
And so it appears that God had not given David the go-ahead to do this. Lee? Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. And in fact, he he never did lift his hand to it because, of course, uh, as the story goes on, uh, Saul is killed by other people, actually his sword bearer. But um, yeah, so David was just trusting God and saying, you know, there's two anointed people still, although obviously David has the better anointing, shall we say, and he's just willing to be patient, which is probably a good lesson for most of us. Yeah, the patience is a good point. I don't think we can fully grasp how hard it would be. Don't think of it as a king who's trying to kill you. Think about it if the major source of irritation and all your problems in your life was right there and all you had to do was step on it and crush it. And all of your major problems would be over. Something like that. Maybe a more applicable um, way for us to think about it. But like the source of all of David's major problems is right here. The people like him. He's been successful in battle. He is anointed. So, so getting rid of Saul in some way seems like it would fix all the lingering issues and David could be king, but he hasn't been given the go-ahead, so he waits. Yes? Yeah, just to build on what Al was saying, uh, David knows that he's in God's plan, right? Right. Um, but ultimately, God's plan is not just an end result. It's how we get there. We learned about that later as well with later on in the David story when he's when he wants to build God a temple and and God tells him, yes, I want a temple, but I don't want you to do it. I want your son to do it. Um, so just because God has in mind that David will be king and, and it will happen, that doesn't mean that he wants David to take those steps himself to, to bring that about. That's a really good point um, that, that God is not. If it's God's plan, the ends don't justify the means. That God's plan is righteous, and how we will bring it about will be righteous. Um, that's that's a really good thought. I like that. Wanda. Boy, but wouldn't it be easy to say, well, God works. You know, he's been protecting me all this time. Now he's put him right in my lap. I mean, you really... I mean, you right. can say God brought him here, like his men yep. said. I mean, that would yep. be, you'd really have to have a good communication with God. Yeah, and I, and I think when you say communication, that's the key, is that we see how close communication David is with God. Just mm-hmm. like, should I leave this city? Are these people going to turn mm-hmm. me over to Saul? God's like, yes, you should. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it seems that David consults God directly in all matters, you know, that, that are concerning him at this time, and... Not only does you know, he not strike Saul, he won't let his men strike Saul, and he even feels what you might call guilt for cutting off a piece of his robe in some way, some small way humiliating God's anointed mm-hmm. um, to catch Saul in such a state. And to, um, but no, that's, that's, that's very good. Yes? Follow-up comment to what kind of Wanda was saying. I think <clears throat> one of the dangers in thinking about, yes, God has a plan, but that doesn't mean he wants me to do it. (laughs) The danger is sort of inaction, you know. Uh, Well, I know God wants to bring this about, but I'm not going to work it in my hand, in my timing, in my, um, I'm not going to be the one to bring it about. Well, maybe, maybe you are God's way of bringing it about. So it's, it's like you were saying, it's a, it's a, the, the balance of, wanting to follow God's plan and timing while also 
being available to be the instrument to do right. what God wants to do. Right. It, it's just a, it's a danger, tricky thing. Yeah, the danger would be something like passivity. You know, we're right. just like, I'm Absolutely. just going to sit and wait. God will do whatever he wants to do, and he certainly doesn't need me to do it. Right. And, and I don't is, want to be the one to, to yeah. step out, out, yeah. of, out of God's timing, so yes. I'm just going to sit here. Yes. And, and we see that, again, with that balance there, we, we see that David is not passive, thankfully. He didn't just go and hide and say, I'm just going to stay here forever until God makes me king. He was out doing things, even fighting Israel's enemies all while this is going on. So um, it just, th- this shows a lot about David, David's heart, um, about his relationship with God. Um, and I think you guys, um, I think you guys hit on all the points I wanted to show there. Um, so David, did we have one more? Did we have one more? Sorry, I've been missing. Oh, yes, Bennett. As you were saying about being patient and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and being, um, he was being like handing down, bowing down to, um, what's his name again? Saul. And he knew he, Psalm was following in God's footsteps, and he knew if he got blood in his hands and tried to kill Psalm, he would be ever in depth of um, being and trying to um, forget God for God to forgive him. It does. It did not doing that. I agree. Did keep it off of his. No one would ever be able to look at David in the future and be like, that guy killed the king to become the king. You know what I mean? So I agree that that, that kept that sort of a mark off of David um, in a way. I do have one other idea. Yes. Um, for doing so, bowing down to Psalm and seeing like, uh, like you said, like a light of... In Psalm and um, of God, and so he said, "Okay, I'm gonna give up." <laughs> so anyway, I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, maybe he's like got the idea of, okay, um, I should leave him alone, and I need to start following in his footsteps with him. Is that right? I wish that Saul had def- left David alone um, and followed in God's no, footsteps. No, I'm saying David should David. let... Well, David does stay his hand. He doesn't strike Saul down. As a matter of fact, when he reveals himself, the first thing he does is bow and show, um, and show deference toward the king. Um, and, it, and it has a pretty profound effect on Saul. Um, when Saul hears David... And sees that David has spared his life. Oh, sorry, question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to know, do you think it also had to do with, um, we were talking about why David didn't kill Saul, mm-hmm. um, the covenant relationship between Jonathan and David? I mean, we see the importance of covenant all through Old, Old Testament. And yes. they had a covenant relationship, I guess, um, that may have played into that as well. Yes, um, what I, we do see um, that that because of that kinship between Jonathan and David, um, there is that. This is my family. Um, you know, it talks about you know their their 
their offspring, you know, and comes together. And that'll come up again later. That's a good point. It might have been because of a simple, um, some a factor of it might have had to do with the fact that David was very close to Jonathan. He wept when they had to part. Um, so killing Jonathan's father, even though it was deserved in so many ways, um, that's a good thought. I hadn't thought of that. But it certainly might have been dis- distasteful to him just because as a as a father, his friend's father, um, that, that could have been uh, difficult as well. Um, so lots of reasons David um, doesn't strike down Saul. And when, and when Saul realizes, basically, when the situation is revealed to him, he weeps and, and tells, calls David more righteous than I. And, um, and Saul, I won't read it for you all just because of time, but Saul further affirms David will be king. Um, and through David, the new kingdom of Israel be, will be established which sounds like a really good confession, except we've heard Saul say things in the past, so we may be a little incredulous about his sincerity. Um, but so Saul makes this, he, he says this very strong thing, and he makes David swear not to cut off Saul's offspring. That was that connection I was going to make, and Saul's basically like, you know, don't kill all of my family when I'm gone. You're going to be the new king. The new kingdom's going to be established through you. Um, a, a harder question is, was, was this a moment of clarity for Saul when he was more in his right mind? Or was it Saul still playing for power and just be like, David, you're the man. You're going to be the man, you know, eventually. Thanks for not killing me, you know, something along those lines. Um, but um, David departs. Um, so for the moment, it seems that there's some peace between them because Saul is so moved by David sparing him. Um, Quickly here, Samuel dies. Remember Samuel, who seemed to have been old in this story for a very long time. Samuel finally does pass away and is given all the honors um, due him, and he's buried in his hometown. Um, but poor Samuel, he's still not done in the story. Though, though he was, though he, it's almost like he retired after the king came, and then he didn't get to enjoy his retirement, and there was conflict with the king, and you know, he was old when this part of the story started, and now he's finally passed away and gone to his rest. But we will see Samuel again. So poor Samuel, he, he, he cannot seem to get out of this story or get away from it. Um, so uh, moving on, um, David marries um, a woman named Abigail. Um, there's a story about her husband and his dealings with David's men. Her husband was a very rich man, but a very foolish man. Um, and she actually ends up saving her husband. Um, but then God strikes her husband dead, so she becomes David's wife. Um, now we see, we were talking about Saul's deterioration, and I think one part of the deterioration we see is the instability. We, we mentioned that some earlier. Now we're in 1 Samuel 26. Saul mobilizes 3,000 men after he's been informed of where David is and chases him again. So again, it seemed like we had a moment of peace, a moment of clarity. You're going to be the king. Nope, that's off again. Saul's got 3,000 men. He's chasing David through the wilderness of Ziph. And at night, David infiltrates the encampment and takes Saul's spear. This is a moment when Saul was as much in David's power as he had been in the cave. Um, And David literally infiltrates through all the encampment and takes Saul's spear, you know, possibly even the spear that Saul had tried to kill him with a couple of times. Um, 
And then David later reveals himself from a great distance on top of a hill. And Saul, again, confesses his sin and blesses David before leaving. So again, we see this vacillation between like Saul, like, oh, wow, David, thanks for not killing me. And then Saul, like, David, I'm going to kill you. And we seem to swing back and forth, and it seems unstable. And, and um, it's, it's hard to know where Saul's going next at this point. He's capricious if he's nothing else. Now, really quickly here, and I won't go through it all just for time's sake. Um, the Philistines are again gathering for war, Israel's old enemies. But there's no Samuel to consult. And Saul visits a median. I, um, you guys will have to read through some of this on your own. It's a very... Um, he has to go in disguise because he had previously removed all the medians and the necromancers from the land. And so he goes and um, he has to sort of like a negotiation with the medium who says, you're trying to get me in really big trouble. You're trying to get me killed. And he takes a vow and he says, you know, by the Lord, you won't be hurt. And so she, the medium does, in fact, bring up poor Samuel. And once she sees who Samuel is, then she knows who Saul is, this medium. And... Um, it is, it, it's a really bad spot to find Saul in. Because remember, what was one of Saul's very first sins when he was supposed to be waiting for Samuel, but he didn't? He wanted a word about what was going to happen, right? He wanted to know what was going to happen. He wanted to know if he was going to be safe. That was like the little baby sin. He didn't wait for God's prophet to show up and tell him. Now, God's prophet's not here anymore, and Saul tries to speak to God, and God's not talking so he goes to a medium's like, will you bring up this dead prophet so I can speak to him? And um, so it, see the connection there? See the connection with that first sin? The whole like, well, I want a word from God and I'm not going to wait for Samuel. He's late. All the way to like, Samuel, it doesn't matter if you're dead. God's not, God's not talking to me. I've got to have a word to tell me if I'm going to be safe and bring him up. You can only imagine, you know, the, it's a very strange, and I'm sorry we don't have time to just cover it all, but you guys can read through it. It's a very strange event. Um, and just thoughts on that. And, and we'll pause here really, uh, really quickly at the end. But basically, to finish the story, Saul and his sons, we're in 1 Samuel 31 now, are overrun by the Philistines in battle on Mount Goboa. He's wounded by archers. And um, falls on his sword to avoid capture. His sons, including Jonathan, are killed there too. And the Philistines behead his body and fasten his body to a wall along with those of his sons. And hearing this, um, men from Jabesh Gilead retrieve the body and bury, retrieve the bodies and bury them and fast for seven days. Um, so I just, like I said, I know we had to rush kind of there at the end. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I wanted to, to get to the end so we could close the book on Saul. And we see that, you know, in the end, Saul is, that, that's how his story, that's how the story that's how he departs. And um, it's not by David's hand. Um, his armor bearer wouldn't kill him. It's, it's funny that Saul seems to have a lot of fear. He's afraid of being captured, you know, and, and he's afraid of so many things. He's afraid of going into battle without knowing what's going to happen. He's afraid of David. He's consumed by his sin, and now we see him dead. And uh, next week we will see David as king, both the good parts and the bad parts, and um, thoughts, thoughts. I'm, I'm sorry we didn't have more time for the median story, um, but 
feel free to read up on that. It is very fascinating and pretty unique among Scripture. Anything else, guys? All right. Have a great week. Thank you so much.